Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Maisha Cherry, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Riverside, and host of the incredible Unmute podcast, which I recommend that you go listen to as soon as you're done listening to this. And she's here to discuss the skill of conversation. I would also encourage you to check out Maisha Cherry's book, Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, which is a, a print edition of a lot of the interviews that she's done on the Unmute podcast. So one thing you hear about a lot in popular media today is that it's important to be willing to have difficult conversations as opposed to, I'm not sure exactly what, as opposed to fighting, as opposed to mm-hmm. being angry all the time. I'm not sure exactly what the contrast is, mm-hmm. but this is something you hear a lot. What is the difference between like a difficult conversation, quote unquote, and just an, an easy one? Yeah, I think there's a range of quote unquote easy conversations, and also think there's a range of of difficult conversations. I think you know even the suggestion that you know conversations being a, a solution to to solve our problems, particularly our political problems. I think it's a sense that we are fighting with each other, or we quote unquote hate each other, or we have these kinds of assumptions about each other. And a lot of this is just based on a misunderstanding, right? It's based on just general stereotypes or assumptions that we have about a particular group or a particular person. And we're talking to everyone else about them, and we're talking about them without actually talking to them, right? And so what seems to be a a solution to all of that is we need to have a conversation. So what makes it difficult is who we're having a conversation with is already somebody that we think we agree with, right? It's already someone that we had these kind of uh, strong, uh, affective responses too. And so when you enter into, now we have to talk, um, if anything, even if the conversation just happened to go easy after that, it's already difficult from the start because of all the assumptions and ideas and emotions that we have going forward. Also, I think that what makes a conversation difficult is not just the people per se or the assumptions per se, but also the topic, right? There are just some things that are hard to talk about. And I mean, we can take that from an interpersonal perspective, but we can also look at that from a political perspective. So I think, you know, contentious, you know, political conversations are hard, like race. In America, it's hard to talk about race. So that's a difficult conversation, right? Also, ethically, what we call kind of taboo topics, such as sex, is also conversations that are difficult to talk about out in the open. So you have in that particular regard. But also interpersonally, when you, you know, sometimes when people suggest, oh, we need to talk. The, even that invitation, we already automatically think that something is wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, it sounds so, like a breakup in a relationship. Yeah, it sounds right? like we're about to break up. Something is wrong. It's about to come to a head. And so that can be a very difficult conversation because of what we think is going to happen, right? But I think easy conversations, I mean, you know, I would like to think that 
this podcast <laughs> is going to be an easy conversation. But then the question is, like, how is that going to be an easy conversation? Well, it could be the case that I just feel a sense of ease talking to you, right? So that could make it an easy conversation. Although we're going to talk about kind of difficult content, right? It also could be, you know, the conversation could be difficult, but we already know given our commitments to one another and to kind of future goals that we're going to make sure that we make some good decisions. So that may affect the ease in which the conversation happens. So I, I think there's a range between what we would consider easy and what we consider difficult. And I think what impacts those things are the people that come into those conversations, the content that is discussed in those conversations, what is at stake in those particular conversations, how long have we held those conversations in, are we really dedicated to finding a solution or at least agreeing to disagree so that there's a range, there's a range. Hmm, that's really interesting. So it seems like maybe, you know, if I'm looking for a good game plan for having these types of conversations about like super emotionally charged issues, whether they be something in a relationship or politics or things like that, maybe the first step is to think about it as a long-term thing. So think about it, the conversation we're having now in terms of previous conversations we've had and like convey some sense that I'm keeping track of the stuff we've said before and that I'm reacting to it and that we're building on stuff we already did. You know, rather than you're just like jumping in to the beginning each time you start a new conversation, kind of like with customer service or something. Right, right. The reality is it's always a continuation. But I also think, you know, this is someone who a few months ago defended her dissertation and even having that, I mean, we don't really look at dissertation defenses conversations, but that, that's kind of what they are, right? They're kind of these, these intellectual conversations that you have about your particular work. And the emotions that I felt, even though I had already had previous conversations with my advisor and previous conversations with members of my committee, and although that quote-unquote conversation, which is a defense, is a continuation of those particular conversations, I think the uncertainty of it all, right? You don't know what this person is going to say now. Right. What kind of different things are they thinking now? Uh, do they still have the same resolve as they had before? So I think also a sense of uncertainty can make even continuous conversations kind of difficult. But I also think, I mean, this probably is going to be kind of a theme running throughout this episode. But, you know, one of the advices that I was given in, in regards to that conversation was, you know, the people remember, these are not assholes. <laughs> They're for you. They're support. And, and that was supposed to bring me some kind of ease to not think that it would be as difficult as I thought. But like I said before, you know, even people can impact. So even the continuation, I think there are things that can still at least make us feel like the conversation is going to be difficult. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I think conversations are a continuation of, of previous conversations. And I think if we begin to look at them as that, they will become a, a little bit more easier. Hmm. So one thing that at least anecdotally to me seems like it often doesn't get emphasized is that there is such a thing as a virtue of being a good person to talk to, right. of being good at conversations. And it's like a skill to develop. It's like a personal skill, mm -hmm. being good to talk to. I suspect that if conversations are an important tool to better understand our differences, or maybe in some cases even get over our differences, the skill of being good at having them is something we probably want to value. Right. In the conclusion to your book of interviews that you've done on your podcast, uh, you talk a bit about, you know, sort of conversational virtues and vices, as it were, different ways of being a good versus a bad conversational partner. What are some ways that a conversation can go awry and uh, at least one of the people in the conversation, maybe both, like end up not quite doing what you're supposed to be doing when you're talking to somebody? 
Right. And I, and I, I offer some suggestions and I, I, I say as I begin to even offer us some suggestions for some virtues to say that I'm not kind of creating anything novel here. These are uh, virtues that virtue epistemologists have talked about, that Aristotle has talked about. You know, one of the things that I kind of argue in that chapter is to suggest difficult conversations can be had. I think one of the lines that I have is difficult conversations can be had if we weren't so hardened. Right. And so one of the things I want to say is that, you know, um, we're going to have difficult conversations in our lives. But I think what prevents us from actually having them and resolving whatever needs to be resolved or learning whatever needs to be learned is us. I think the problem is us. And so the question is, what can we do about us (laughs) to make sure that when we enter into these conversations, whatever needs to be done can be done? And so I suggest kind of these virtues. And, here, you know, some of the virtues that I'm thinking about is a sense of humility. And we kind of talk about this in epistemology, you know, kind of epistemic humility, right? The notion that we don't know at all. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I don't really like talking to know-it-alls. I'd like to enter into a conversation where a person, both of us are open to what the other person have to say. We're not, you know, dogmatic thinking that we know everything or we're going to stick to everything, but we just come with a sense of open-mindedness and we're, we're open to learning from the other person. And when you enter into a conversation which a person knows what you know, think they know what you know, think they know what everyone knows. I mean, the conversation is not so interesting, right? I mean, we don't get what we thought we would get from the conversation. So one of the suggestions that I offer is this notion of, of humility. I mean, you mentioned prior to us pressing record the notion of mansplaining. And even that, I mean, it's, it's kind of this idea that because a man has a penis, <laughs> he just happily knows everything and the woman knows nothing. And so <laughs> the man must explain everything to her because she, by the virtue of her gender, she knows nothing. Although he knows nothing, right? But he's, that, he, he's not coming with this with a sense of humility, right? Thinking that because of his social position and he knows more than her. And so that's an example of, of a vice since, you know, you come to a conversation thinking that the person knows nothing. It is not to say that you don't, uh, try to be patient with an individual and be sensitive to any kind of learning curves or uh, anything that you think that person may not know. But I think mansplaining takes it overboard, right? So those, I think those are two examples of, of kind of a, a virtue and a vice, right? This epistemic humility when we enter into a conversation and this idea that we know everything and we need to explain everything to the other person, which is the device of mansplaining. But also in the book, I kind of talk about the notion of patience, you know, I admit this, my brain can run 89, 100 miles per hour. And there's so much I want to talk about in the conversation. And, you know, just reminding myself that this is not a monologue, it's a dialogue between me and the other person. And so as much as I want to speak, that other person also wants to speak. And if we both want to share and we both want to learn, then I must give that person the opportunity to talk. And so a lot of that just requires patience. Yes, an idea has just come to me. But that doesn't give me a pass to now articulate or to stop that person from talking so that I can talk. You know, one of the main interruptions that we often do, which I'm trying to get out of habit of doing is not to cut you off, but right. I mean, even that insertion, it it suggests that what just came to my mind is more important than what is coming out of your mouth. And I think 
you know, uh, those are not good conversational virtues. And, you know, like I said, I admit sometimes I commit that sin. And I think it's just being patient. And, and, and as much as I'm kind of saying patience, I think a lot of times thinking that we need to say it now, you know, is this idea. That's not a sense of humility. It's just the idea that what I have to say, you know, is much more spectacular than what you're actually saying. It's also not an exercise of humility. But it's like, you know, just being patient and not speaking over people and giving people the opportunity to talk and respecting what people have to say. You know, and so those are the virtues I think that kind of comes to mind. Open-mindedness, we can add open-mindedness to the list. Another virtue, sincerity. You know, you want to talk to someone who has a sense of integrity, who's not playing a character to get approval, who's not trying to mask their motives or anything like that. They're just being who they are. They're not being pretentious or anything. I mean, those are the kind of virtues that I'm trying to suggest. I mean, I've been in conversations with people where they're just talking to me as a filler. They're waiting for the next important person to walk by. Right. And you can detect that. And so I may think we're having a good conversation (laughs) and that person is just not being sincere in that regard. So those are some of the the virtues that I'm trying to offer up. And the reason why I'm offering them up is I just think that as much as we rather interpersonally, you know, hesitate about the conversations that we have with other people or we think politically that the topic is too big to talk about. I think if we just begin to work on those things on both sides. Right our conversations would be much more easier to have. Um, And I want to encourage us to talk to one another. I mean, doing these podcast interviews, I mean, I've had the opportunity to talk to people with a a lot of different views, views that are very quite different from mine. And I've learned a lot and I've had the opportunity to kind of try to put these virtues into practice. Um, But I've learned a lot and I believe in conversations. Um, I, I believe in them. I believe in them professionally and also believe in them interpersonally. You know, my relationships have grown because I talk to people. I'm honest with people. I survived grad school because of the conversations that I had with people that I know that is in my corner and people that can challenge me. So I see the benefits in in conversations and they're not always going to be easy. And I just want to encourage them and they're going to get more difficult. Um, We live in a very contentious time and I don't want us to stop having them because of the difficulty level. But I want to challenge us to perhaps work on ourselves uh, so that we can just have better of them so we can get the benefits of them. So this overconfidence vice, as it were, is one that I find interesting. Uh, I think we've all had a lot of students who are like super confident and constantly raising their hands, uh, you know, talking over the other students, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And you might think that that's a symptom of somebody going into a conversation, not with the goal of examining their views and trying to learn something from the other person, but rather going in with the goal of convincing or instructing, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. the other person, getting them to see things the way I do. Mm -hmm. One thing I wonder sometimes is, is there like the opposite vice of that? Is there a vice of not being confident enough when you're talking? Something like not according your opinions, the respect they deserve and and thus not offering enough to the other person so that they can learn? Right, right. I totally believe in that. You know, I kind of take an Aristotelian kind of approach to these things, right? You can have too much and you can have too little. And I can relate. I think if we've been in any classroom, whether that's in a teacher capacity or student capacity, um, we know of a student who was, I mean, I guess we can make an assumption to say that person was overconfident, right? Overconfident in the sense in which not only did they raise a hand a lot, didn't give other people the opportunity to talk, but they just always felt that they had something to say. (laughs) And everything that they said was always relevant and always on point and disregarding other people. I think that's overconfidence, right? And then there were people probably in that same classroom who didn't have any confidence, right? So they didn't speak at all and felt that they didn't have anything to contribute to the conversation. But I also think that there's an in-between. And I think this in-between 
it's not just having just the right amount of confidence, but connected to having the right amount of confidence in that conversation is knowing when to talk as well, not just how much to talk and how much confidence to have when one talks. So what, I, what I'm thinking about is, I know I've been in some instances in which, I mean, going back to the classroom example of that person who kept raising their hand and was just overconfident with what they had to say, and they were saying things to convince everybody and not really to learn anything. And I may have sat there with a sense of confidence in my own beliefs and my own arguments, but with that right amount of confidence, I knew that no matter what I said would not be taken up with a certain kind of seriousness. And so the best thing that I could have done in that instance was not to raise my hand, right? I was able to detect that the atmosphere was such that me even attempting to participate in it wouldn't yield anything good. And I think I, you know, I would suggest that I had kind of evidence to support that, whether that is past evidence or whether that was present evidence to support that. And it wasn't just insecurity or or trying to stay in my comfort zone. So I, I think that's that. Right. So I think that someone who does have the right amount of confidence in a conversation, sometimes that right amount of confidence will suggest that perhaps I shouldn't say anything. Or it's kind of, you know, with the New Testament throwing pearls to swine in some sense, not to call people who raise their hand pigs, but I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> so, so just you recognize in that moment that it's no need for me to participate. Maybe I just need to listen and just learn to this extent and even listen and learn this person's personality. Right. So there's instances of that. And then there's instances in which, you know, you can have the right amount of confidence. And you do indeed feel that this is a space in which one can say what they need to say. But I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that people that are silent in a room are exhibiting some kind of vice in some way. And I want to suggest that even that silence can be a virtue if they have taken into consideration that what will happen to their speech act once it's uttered. And um, particularly when it comes to kind of very difficult conversations. I mean, you know, imagine that classroom being a, a class about race and you have this one black person in the room. And everyone is expecting that person to speak. <laughs> but no one really wants that person to speak or really going to take what they have to say seriously. And so that person's silence may be considered as complicity, may be considered as underconfidence, insecurity. But that person may be exhibiting the perfect virtue in that particular instance. Um, but I do think that there's such thing as overconfidence or underconfidence. But even having the right amount of confidence may require silence in that moment or just listening in that moment. And that's, I think that's a good strategy. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, right. We often, I think, assume that having the right amount of confidence means like speaking more or something. But there can be situations in which that's a strategically unwise move. And right, right. it seems like maybe in these situations, the issue is that if the person were to speak then what they said wouldn't be taken seriously and then there'd be a whole spectacle made of the thing they yeah. said not getting taken seriously. Maybe the cost of playing into the hands of everybody yeah, yeah. who's making that spectacle happen outweighs the benefit of contributing to the conversation because maybe you aren't even really contributing to it. Right, right. And it's a strategy. I mean, like I said, it takes a lot of wisdom to figure out when to speak. It takes a lot of wisdom to really figure out when is the appropriate time to speak. And I don't think that's just limited to patience. I think... Yeah, a person who's able to, you know, really figure out, now I can speak. That person is a wise person. When we're with our friends or when we're on a panel or when we're in a classroom, that's not always the first thing that comes to our mind because we think that those are spaces in which, hey, everyone is going to speak. Everyone's going to have their turn. We want everybody to have their turn. But And then the question is, so what kind of conversation was that? <laughs> right? I would even suggest that some conversation, you know, it doesn't require, you know, this person had 50 lines and you had two lines, therefore that wasn't a conversation. I disagree with that. 
you know, every person doesn't have to have the same amount of lines in order for us to say, hey, that was a good conversation. We count the syllables and, <laughs> and weigh them or something. Yes. Were we equal in that, in that regard? I don't think that that's what it takes to have a conversation. I mean, there's been moments where if you have a best friend, your best friend calls you up. And, and most of the time you'd be like, huh? What? No. And that person is just rambling. And you've only said about 10 words repeatedly over and over again. But you all actually had a conversation. And it was good. It, that person was able to get the benefits without you having to say a whole bunch of anything. Just listening and doing some type of confirmation and affirmation and, and being very patient and being very wise with one's words at the risk that one doesn't say a lot. It's still a conversation. I think we need to have more of those conversations as well. Yeah, I love the example of like your best friend calling you up because they want to pour their heart out. It seems like maybe it's a little harder to observe, but listening can be just as much of a contribution to the conversation exactly. as saying stuff. Exactly. Really, really listening. So one thing I wonder about this sometimes is, I guess, and the data on this are limited, but there are some sociolinguists who argue that the etiquette around interrupting in conversations varies from culture to culture. Mm. So it has been claimed, for example, that in the New York Jewish style of speaking, interrupting is considered good because it conveys the impression that like you're really listening to the person, you're really excited about what they're saying, and you just want to build on it right. or something. Whereas maybe in like Midwest American English, it's considered rude for the, like the reasons we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not sure what I think about this personally because I grew up in the New York area and I still find it annoying when mm-hmm. people interrupt me all the time. Right. <laughs> But nonetheless, I am kind of intrigued by this question of like uh, how much of this varies from culture to culture, um, sort of like norms of speaking. And do you have to sort of like tune up your conversational habits depending on what social environment you're in? Yeah, I mean, the the example that's coming to mind, and I'm going to try to be as rated G as possible, is you think about conversation and then you think about acts of intimacy, right? You know, if we come into acts of intimacy without figuring out what that person likes, what that person is open to, you're going to have a a difficult time and how that goes. Playing the guessing game is going to be complicated. But having a, uh, you know, trying to figure out, okay, I like this, you like this. I'm open to this. I'm not open to this, blah, 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 makes that experience much better. And I think it's the same way in in relationship to conversations, right? So I I want to admit that there are some cultural variances regionally and also internationally. But I think coming to a conversation is important to know what that person likes and what they don't like. So the person doesn't like being cut off. Maybe we need to figure that out while we're having a conversation or before we have that particular conversation. So I think I I just want to challenge and I know through conversations, we get to know others, right? We get to be intimate with others. But just trying to, you know, figure out as opposed to playing the guessing game prior to engaging in these things, I think we need to figure out what a person likes and what a person doesn't like. My conversations look totally different when I talk to my sister than when I talk to my best friend. And the reason why that is the case is because I have kind of a knowledge of both. I know what they like and what they don't like. So there's some words <laughs> that I can call my best friend that I can't call my sister. That's not going to fly. And when, it, when I call these words to my best friend, it gives her a sense of affirmation and it makes her laugh. That would not work in regards to my sister. I don't think I cut any of them off. But, you know, I, I think what can be solved is as opposed to trying to figure out, hey, regionally, this doesn't work. I think we just need to figure out what works for that particular person. Yeah. So in other words, conversation should be safe, sane, and consensual. (laughs) Yes, yes. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect. You know, I'm glad you mentioned earlier about the continuation, right? Because I want to hold that, you know, each conversation is a continuation of a previous, and the conversations you currently have will continue, 
right? And so as much as we're seeing conversation in the singular, we're talking about kind of ongoing conversations that are going to continue. And so what I what I learned from you in this conversation, Matt, it's going to affect the conversations that we have future because it's going to be some things that I learn. I'm going to realize just by the expressions on your face that there's certain things that I probably shouldn't say or a certain tone that I should minimize, right? And that's really filling people out. And that's intimacy, right? And I think we need to pick up on those cues. But I think sometimes we miss out on those when we're just so focused on ourselves and our own ideas and what we have to say, the point we want to convey and how we want you to get on our side. And when it's so me focused, I think that's where we lose not only the benefits, but we end up exercising some vices that affect not only the conversation that we're having, but it leaves a bad impression and it can cause some harm on behalf of the person that we're having a conversation with. Yeah. So this is maybe a little bit controversial, but I'm kind of inclined to think that, you know, in um, non G-rated arenas, the thing to do is really don't be shy about talking about what you like, what you don't like, mm-hmm. um, asking the other person what they like, what they don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe something similar applies when you're having conversations. Maybe it is okay to actually just have a conversation about the conversation, maybe briefly or something. But right, right, right. Uh, there, I think there is sort of like um, a little bit of a social pressure not to have a conversation about the conversation you're having. Right. Because you have to grind the first one to a halt. Right, right. But uh, maybe that itself, too, is something you uh, take by case case If we can put this into practice, right? So there's certain things that we do say, which is a conversation about the conversation. So I think one of the most popular examples of this is, can I ask you a question? That's a nice one. Yeah. Can I ask you a private question? Can I ask you a question about blah, blah, blah? That's a perfect example about a conversation before an actual conversation. Because it's asking for some type of consent to enter into an intimate space. Right. And if that person says, no, I don't feel comfortable about talking about this particular topic, then we know it's off and we can talk about something else. I think that's a good example of that. And it could also be the case. I mean, sometimes I think the conversation about the conversation can also be, how might I say, kind of implicit. So it could be the case as I'm starting to talk to you, I begin to notice that your facial expressions is a certain way. That is a conversation. We, we might not say a conversation about the conversation, but a conversation under the conversation that I ought to pay attention to and adjust the explicit conversation that we're having accordingly. Now, before this sounds abstract and just over the top for listeners, we do this, right? We're social linguistic animals. We also pick up on social expressions. We pick on, up on certain cues if we have a certain kind of IQ in regards to this. This is what we do all the time. And I think we just need to pay more attention to that. And sometimes we know when we're not paying attention to it, we know when we are deciding to put that aside to whatever agenda we have. So I'm just challenging us to pay more close attention to that. And that will make, I believe, our conversations go a little bit better. What would be an example of a topic that is sort of in the zeitgeist today mm-hmm. where the conversation we're having about it would benefit from like more attention to how we have it. So let me just use an example of when my best friend and I began to talk about race. Prior to talking about the conversation, we actually really did have a conversation about the conversation. So the way in which it happened was we basically explained where we were coming from, right? So I'm coming from, I'm a black woman who was raised in the South, lived in the Northeast all of her life. So my mother was lived in Jim Crow South um, and had those experiences. Um, I'm a black queer woman who had these experiences day to day basis. I'm consciously aware of my identity from day to day. And I have these experiences that affect when I enter into a store and, and all that stuff. And her conversation about the conversation was I'm coming from the Middle East. 
and which I'm still learning about this notion of what even race is. That's an odd concept to me. But I'm beginning to realize it because I went into a store and a few of our friends, our brown friends were being followed. So I'm slowly but surely coming to a realization about the reality of race in America, right? Both of those things have an impact. So now when we begin to talk about race, now she knows in some ways is that, hey, Maisha, you've had more of an experiential experience with race. I perhaps need to be more open to that, right? So I don't know what was in her mind, but I'm trying to imagine that given that conversation about a conversation, how that would inform the conversation is, well, Maisha talks about her experiences, meaning that I don't even understand how race operates in America. Maybe I need to really, really listen to her, right? So whatever prejudgment she's had, whatever, oh, it, may, it wasn't race, maybe it was something else. Maybe that's now gone where she has entered into a space where she needs to listen, right? And for me, being that she doesn't really understand the concept of race, I thought myself, which may be considered mansplaining or whatever to other people, that I now have to break down very slowly certain things to her that I know she may not be aware of. But I'm able to do that. Now our conversations look different and it may be interpreted by other people in very odd ways or judgments externally. But they are what they are because we've had these implicit or explicit conversations about the conversation that now informs how our conversation about race goes. Right. So that's kind of what I'm what I'm talking about. And then when you enter into those conversations now, you can exercise a certain kind of some certain virtues in regard to the person in which you're having an encounter with. Right. And then our race conversation was totally different when I talked to a, a black person who's also from the South. And then it would look totally different when we talk. And I will expect that even as we we talk about race and we've had philosophical conversations that you will have a recognition, at least if we haven't directly talked about it, you have probably heard some things or, you know, kind of my political commitments that you would take those into consideration. And those are like many kind of off the record conversations that you had with yourself about me before you enter into the conversation. So I know Maisha was raised in this particular region. So that's going to, you know, whatever. Or I know that. You know, Maisha have had these kinds of experiences. Oh, I already know what Maisha thinks about such and such. But given that I know that, that's going to inform how I go about the conversation or what I, what I say. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about. And I think sometimes the easy route is I know this person is conservative. I know this person is liberal. Let's have this conversation now. I still don't think that's enough a conversation about the conversation because you can still come in there with kind of assumptions and just saying, oh, this person is black, this person is white. Let's enter into, we already had a conversation. I already know what I need to know. That's not what I'm talking about either. But that's the example, you know, my best friend example is the example that I can provide that's immediately in my mind about conversations about the conversation that was pretty quite explicit that affected how we actually talked about race in our conversations. I mean, you know, I'm I'm even thinking about uh, my advisor is Jewish. And given that I, I know his political commitments and his religious commitments, and we've had conversations about that, that when I ask questions, they are informed about previous conversations that we had that wasn't directly about Israel, Palestine. But I've picked up stuff from previous conversations um, that we may say are either pre-conversations or conversations about the actual conversation about Israel that we're actually going to have. And that has informed that conversation along the way. So that's that's what I'm thinking about. And I hope that's not too convoluted or abstract in a way. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating example. I wonder whether um, race is different from some other topics in this regard in the following way. Maybe race is different from, I don't know, the chemistry of acids as a topic mm-hmm. um, because different people have such different experiences. Right. 
relating to race. Whereas the chemistry of acids, it's like you can have two different kinds. Either you know about it or you don't or something. So <laughs> it's not like your whole social world is like sort of shaped differently. And, you know, the opportunities you're given are, are totally different. And, you know, just the way you think about how to live a life right. is shaped by that topic. Whereas with race, you know, our understanding of even what it is, is so tied into where exactly we're plugged into the social hierarchy and what kind of social status we have and what our life experiences have been. Right. And another thing, too, I think I was trying to think of if there was an analogous example for me. And I was thinking um, maybe sometimes when I talk to friends of mine from other countries about racial issues, there is more scene setting that has to get done. Yeah. So like in Brazil or South Africa, where the menu of options about right. what, what race you can be is different. We have to lay a little bit of the groundwork, right. uh, understanding what the significance of these different categories is, right. especially if it's a category that doesn't exist in the U.S. Right, right. And, and you know, to be honest with you, when you have kind of, let's say, different experience, not just different experience in the United States, but someone who doesn't even understand the context whatsoever, in some ways there's a lot of explanatory work. And I think those conversations can be a little bit more easier to have. I think what makes race conversations much more difficult it's like you said, when that person has an experience in this particular context that's quite different from your experience in that particular context, and you're already fixed on a, social, a particular hierarchy, the investment that we all have in this concept and the way that the society is organized can influence kind of how we take that conversation to go. And I think, you know, it goes back to the example we kind of alluded to earlier about when someone says, I need to talk to you, we really think, oh, we're in trouble, right? And I think when we talk about race, also we have this feeling that, oh, I'm in trouble. In some way, I am going to be implicated in what my white cousins or white comrades have done, and I do not want that to happen, right? Or there's a certain perception that I have of the world, that I believe about the world, and I, in some ways, don't want to give up that perception. And either the reason why we don't have the same perception is because it's your fault. And so you also in some way can break down someone's way in which they perceive the world, which is very hard to want to give that up on both ends. So I think there's, like we talked about the hierarchy, there's also an investment. There's like this notion of being in trouble. Are we going to find out that we're actually complicit? If I say something wrong, I'm going to hurt somebody's feeling. I'm going to be looked at as racist. You know, all these other things that can be wrapped up in the topic of race. And like one of the things that I'm trying to suggest is none of that has to happen if we enter into this very difficult conversation with these and try to put these virtues into practice. And so, you know, the reason why one might think that they're going to be implicated in some way is that they're already coming to the conversation with a sense of being defensive. Right. And so what I'm I, what I'm trying to suggest is we know this off the back, whether we've been in a romantic relationship. If you come into a conversation already defensive, that conversation is going to go in a whole new another direction. You're not going to hear what needs to be heard. You're going to think you heard something that you actually didn't hear. The tone is going to be different. So we already see that that's a problem. I'm trying to challenge, you know, us to kind of work on us. Race is what it is. You know, race whatever we define it as, whatever we talk about the racial hierarchy, whether we talk about the history of, of racism in America and, and slavery and uh, white privilege, those things are what they are. Question is, who are we going to be when we enter into those conversations to talk about those things? And I want to say it's us that can become the problem, not race itself. So if we weren't so defensive, if we weren't so close-minded that we don't want to give up our perception of the world in regard as it relates to race, 
that we don't even want anyone to pierce that little bubble that we feel that we are. And if we weren't that, then we could have the conversation. Right. And so that's what I'm trying to challenge us, that as much as we want to say it's the topic, it's the topic. I'm not saying that the topic is not difficult. I'm not saying that the topic is not hard, but I want to say the true problem <laughs> If we can just get past us being the problem, you know, you think about the notion of enemy and you say that very slowly in the me, like that's where it lies in me. Like if we can just get get ourselves together as we engage in these conversations, they will be much more easier to have. One thing I really like as well about your example is that the uh, sort of like groundwork that you and your conversational partner can do, in this case, your friend is based on your individual experiences, which I think is, it's important to emphasize because one thing you often hear, I guess I sort of hear it more on conservative political podcasts and whatnot, but one thing you often hear is that like, oh, we need to get away from identity politics. Mm -hmm. We need to stop judging people on the basis of what social category they fall into, yada, yada, yada. And then often that line of argument sort of mutates into this, well, we shouldn't even consider what a person's background is. Mm -hmm. But you know, what you just said strikes me as like the perfect response to that, because it seems to me that what you're saying is when we're doing this sort of groundwork and we're trying to figure out what are our different experiences of race, we're not doing it just by way of some social category and assuming everybody who falls in the social category has the same experience. We're yeah. doing it just by virtue of our own personal individualized uh, autobiography up till now. And then that ends up being the starting point for laying out our assumptions going into the conversation. Yeah, I think in a way that example is really clarifying that like kind of like what we're not doing in your example is just assuming that everybody who falls into social category fits the same cookie cutter mold. Right. I'm also interested. I mean, several things that popped in my head. I'm always interested in people who are against identity politics, at least in language, because I think the American project is an identity political project that was focused on a particular identity, which were particularly white men. We look at a lot of laws and books and policies. We can look at who are in government that is nothing but an identity politics, a great example of identity politics. And so I kind of reject the view that anytime someone talks about their identity or someone fights for a particular cause in which a social group is most uh, vulnerable, that that's an example of identity politics way before black and brown people came to what is now America. The white project was an identity politics project. And so with that in mind, I want to say, if that's the case, then a lot of stuff in which we talk about is informed by our social position and our, our particularity. And so it's not just examples of race, even when we talk about economics, even when we talk about science, even when we talk about literature and what we think are the great American novels is influenced by identity and, and social positioning. And so it's not just these kind of identity, kind of political topics in which we are concerned about people bringing or talking out of their experiences, but a whole bunch of stuff that we talk about and a whole bunch of stuff that we think about is informed by that. I mean, it's very hard for me. You know, I recently saw this documentary on Einstein, which is fabulous. It's on Netflix, by the way. And I'm watching it as a black woman <laughs> and I'm interpreting a whole bunch of stuff through that particular lens. It's impossible. And this is this whole lie that suggests that only certain bodies do that is nothing but a lie. We do it all the time. The question is, can we do it with a sense of integrity? Can we do it with a sense of generosity in relationship to other people? I mean, we're not these kind of abstract, stoic 
objective bodies that walk the earth, right? We live, we have subjective experiences. We live a life of particularity. And so to even suggest that we don't do otherwise or only certain people don't do otherwise is just a joke to me. And it's not being sincere. And I don't want to have conversations with those people because they're not ready to have real conversations because they haven't practiced a certain virtues in which conversations can be beneficial. And so that's what I'm kind of challenging us. I think one of the most disrespectful things to do to someone, and Robin Dillon has an account of this in her account of respect, and I can use this as an account of disrespect, and you don't see a person in their particularity. When you don't consider a person from their point of view, that's being disrespectful. And so I do want to see race when I see a person. I do want to see New York when I see a person, um, because that person is coming from, you know, to the conversation with a very unique perspective uh, that can inform my particularity. So I want to, I want to encourage that. I mean, that's how we learn from each other, right? I mean, I mean, we haven't really talked about ways in which we engage in conversations, not just to, you know, kind of express our point of view, but it's a learning experience. And if I want to learn just about economics, I will go to a textbook. But there's reasons why in this, right now we're reading, recording this podcast in the uh, philosophy department library at uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. So we're in a room full of books. And most of these books are not textbooks, right? These are authors that are writing arguments, from their particular intellectual perspective. And we love books, we eat them up, and we eat them up very differently than what we do textbooks. You wanna know why? Because we love particularity. We love for a person to speak out of the fullness of their identity and give us their full kind of unique perspective on their intellectual contribution, which is very different from the same book and the same topic right beside the book on the shelf. That's what we thrive on. And so to encourage the textbook mentality of abstractness and not really walking in one's thing is a boring conversation. Textbooks are boring. Books are very interesting for those reasons in which I highlighted. Right. At the risk of just agreeing with you too much. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, That's pretty much exactly how I think of it. Like acknowledging a person's individuality and particularity, part of that is acknowledge acknowledging how they've been socially positioned because we've all been socially positioned slightly differently in a different we have a whole bunch of uh, social statuses imposed on us and they interact with each other in all different right. ways and it just ends up being a different combination of factors for every individual person right. but there's no like conflict between talking about that acknowledging that and interacting with the person as an individual in fact they're exactly the same thing right right and what we can learn from that is amazing and I kind of want to encourage, I mean, th- there can be very different goals to conversation or different outcomes to conversation. I think not every conversation is, the aim should be persuasion. Not every conversation, the aim should be winning an argument. I think, you know, some conversations is just you not know, coming to this conversation and now I know more about you than I did before. Or I came to this conversation, I don't know anything about you, but I know more about this topic than I knew before. Or I don't know anything about this topic or anything about you, but I know more about me as a result of this conversation. Um, so there's various goals that can come out of it. And sometimes the goal that we want out of the conversation is not the goal that we get. And I still think that's a beautiful thing. But no matter what the goal, I think we can accomplish a great goal, like I said, when we begin to kind of change the person or transform or work on the person that is the conversation partner, which is ourself. Maisha Cherry. Thank you so much for having a conversation that was peppered with <laughs> conversations about itself. Uh, it was a delightful experience. Thank you so much for that, Matt, for the opportunity. Once again, I want to mention that Maisha Cherry's book, Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, is out from Oxford University Press, so uh, please run out and buy that. And I would also strongly encourage you to check out her podcast called The Unmute Podcast. You can find it 
through iTunes, Google, wherever you get podcasts. It's a real treat. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.